Well, good morning, church. It is incredible to see how many people are here this morning, to see all of your beautiful faces. You know, partway through worship, Dan came to me. He's like, I don't know if we have enough seats for everybody. I'm like, that's a good problem. I like that problem. Like, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll find more seats. But, but this is great. That It's great to have so many people just joining together, worshiping together, and, and growing together in community. Well, I'm excited, though, this morning because this is week three, the final week of a series that we've been doing called It's Not About You. Turn to your neighbor right now and say that to them. It's not about you. Because that's just a reminder to us. The title of the series is really just a reminder to us that life is not about us. Because over the past couple of weeks, we've been addressing some different lies that society and, and the enemy like to tell us about how we're supposed to live our life. Because typically, people like to live life focused on two things. One is being happy. How many of you want to be happy? Just a few. Okay. Okay. Half of the crowd. All right. I know which half I'm praying for this week. Um, but to be happy and not to suffer. Like, that sounds like a pretty great life overall, like being happy and not suffering. And, and what we're told by society is in order to be happy and in order to not suffer, what we need to do is we need to focus on ourselves. We need to focus on our needs, our wants. It's all about my urges, my desires, my needs, how I see myself. And, and, and the point of this series is, is that I believe that God has something greater in store for us than a life where we just focus on ourselves. I believe that God is calling us to a life where we're not focused on ourselves, where we're not thinking it's about me, but we're actually focused on others, focused on the needs of others, looking at others, regarding them with, as more important than ourselves, looking to their needs, so that as, as other people, as God takes care of our needs, we are looking and we are supporting other people as well. And so over the past two weeks, we, we've talked about uh, the ego trap, we've talked about the bias trap, talking about how it's not about me, and it's not about what they did to me, I still have to treat them with respect. And, and all of that really was just a framework for this last part. Because, you know, I think that humility is more than just how we treat others. I think there's an inward reality to humility. That a part of humility is actually having an accurate or correct view of ourselves. That, that humility is, is not just helping others and looking after them, but it's how we see ourselves. How we see issues that we encounter. How we see the world around us and the perspective or lens that we use to view the world. And, and you know, we live in a society that likes to tell us that it is all about us. It's all about my views of myself. If 50 people tell me I'm wrong, but I think I'm right, that's all that matters. We think it's about my views of myself, my views of a situation. My views are what is right in a moment or in a situation. But I think God has something deeper in store for each one of us than for us to just rely on ourselves. So I want to kick us off this morning with a good old-fashioned battle story out of the Old Testament. I haven't had an opportunity to preach a good old-fashioned battle story from the Old Testament since, I think, since I led youth a couple years back. But, 
But I, I love the Old Testament because there's just all these really cool stories of God coming through for his people. And, and so I want to look at the story from 2 Kings. It's 2 Kings chapter 6. It says this, Once when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he took counsel with his officers. He said, At such and such a place shall be my camp. I just want to pause there for a second because I love how specific the Bible is being. Like, I have no idea. It's such and such a place shall be. I, I just, I have to assume that they had a table with a map and he was like, it's such and such a place. I hope, but we don't know. Just as such and such a place shall be my camp. And but the man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel saying, take care not to pass this place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel sent word to the place of which the man of God spoke. More than once or twice he warned such a place so that it was on alert. The mind of the king of Aram was greatly perturbed because of this. He called his officers and said to them, Now tell me, who among you sides with the kingdom of Israel? Who is the spy? Then one of his officers said, No one, my lord, king. It is Elisha, the prophet in Israel, who tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedchamber. No big deal. I don't know about you, but I say things in my bedroom that I don't want people to know about. (laughs) Just no big deal. Like, don't worry about it. Because that's a safe space. I'm just being real. It's a safe space. He's like, and so the king of Aram, he's, he's in the situation where essentially what's going on is he is trying to wage war with Israel. And not in the sense of, of he's invading Israel, trying to take their land or stuff. What they're doing is they're engaging in the typical warfare that would happen at this day and age, where the king of Aram is sending a troop of, or a group of soldiers, and they go into a, a part of Israel, and they attack a village, or they attack a city, and then they take all of their possessions and then leave. So they're trying to raid, they're trying to pillage, they're trying to take Israel's stuff and and do it. And he's sending his troops out being like, oh, they're not going to expect this coming. And as the soldiers walk up, Israelites are like, oh, hey guys, how's it going? We've we've been waiting for you. You're like three days late. But we're here, you want to fight? And the king's like, what is going on? Who is the spy? And they're like, no, 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 it's not a spy. It's just Elisha, the prophet, Israel. He knows what you're saying in your bedchamber. And so the king says, go and find where he is. I will send and seize him. And he was told, he is in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots there and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city. And his servant said, alas, master, what are we to do? We're surrounded. There's nowhere to go. What are we to do? But Elisha replied, do not be afraid. For there are more with us than there are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant. And he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around them. You know, in this moment, Elisha and his servant are surrounded. They're in the city that is completely surrounded by enemy troops who want to capture them, who want to take them back, who want to imprison them, who want to take away their freedom and their ability to do what God has called them to do. 
And the servant sees this army and he is afraid because, you know, his contingency plan failed. He's like, I'm unarmed. I don't know how to wield a weapon. I can't protect us. Uh, my plans have failed. Like, we have no way to escape. There's no way out. And, and, and there's nothing that the servant can do to save him. But Elisha simply prays, open his eyes that he may see. You know, we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded by, um, by, by things that tell us what to think about ourselves. That tell us, this is what you have to do in order to get ahead in life. That tell us, this is what you should think about the situation. That tell us, oh, there's a pandemic spreading around the world, so you need to be afraid. Or that tell us, oh, Russia invaded Ukraine, so, so you need to be afraid. We have all these things going on in the world that try to tell us what to think about ourselves and what to think about situations. And, and we're told that we need to trust in ourselves, in our abilities, in our, our, our gifts, in our finances, in our wisdom, in, in our own perspective of, of what we think is, is right. But I believe that true humility requires that we view ourselves and our problems through a different perspective, through God's perspective instead of our own. So I want to talk to you this morning about a trap that I know I struggle with. If I'm being real, I know I struggle with more often than I'd like to admit. A trap that I'm sure most of us, if we're honest, would say we, we've struggled with at some point in our life. A trap that I'm calling the trust trap. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to see what you're doing in our midst. Open our ears to hear how you are moving in this city, in this nation, across the world, God. I pray that I will be an adequate mouthpiece for your word, Lord, that, that we will not leave this room the same, Lord, but that we will leave having put our trust in you, knowing that you are the God who is in charge. I pray this in your name. Amen. The trust trap. Who do you trust? You know, trust is a word that I think we use in our society, we use fairly broadly. We use it to describe all sorts of things, all sorts of people, uh, situations, different kinds of things that ultimately we, we trust in or we rely on. We, we can trust in people. We can trust in things. We can trust in organizations. We can trust in our finances. We trust in our leadership. We can have trust in our kids. We, uh, we, we can trust our friends when they tell us, oh yeah, that shirt looks good on you. Even if it doesn't. We trust that the sun will rise and the sun will set. We trust when we go to bed that we're going to wake up in the morning. We trust when we get on a bus that the bus driver is going to actually drive us to our destination and is not going to just drive off into the middle of nowhere and dump us off 50 kilometers north of Edmonton. We trust that when we flip a light switch, a light will turn on. We, we intrinsically trust the reliability of so many things and, and people uh, in our lives because, you know, realistically, if you lift if you lived your life constantly afraid of, ooh, if I flip that light switch, is it going to turn on? That would be miserable. But we trust 
in all of these different things. And trust is important for us to have, but, but at the same time, while trust is important and adds value to life, trust is also one of those things that is incredibly dangerous for our lives because if we trust in things that aren't reliable, we're bound to get hurt. For instance, if you trust in the brakes of your car to stop and they don't, it's a dangerous situation to be in. If you trust the company you work at to have your best interest at heart instead of the, their bottom line at heart, and they don't, well, you're going to be subject to their greed. If you, if you trust um, that you are going to be able to complete a task on your own, and especially if you're working with power tools and you have no idea what you're doing, if you trust that you're able to complete a task on your own and, and, and you don't, well, A, that can leave you feeling like failure, like, oh, I should have been able to do this, but I wasn't able to do this. And if you're working with power tools and you've no idea what you're doing, it can possibly leave you with other kinds of physical pain. Or, or you know, how many of you have ever trusted somebody that, like, three minutes later, you're like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have trusted them. It's the friend who turns around and betrays you. It's the coworker who you vent to about the company, and then they turn around and stab you in the back. It, see, trust is important because trust allows society to function. It allows people to live together, to work together. To, to, it allows families and co- communities to come together and to grow, to pursue a common goal or, or to build towards a common vision. But the danger of trust is when we trust in the wrong things, when we place our trust in things and people that don't deserve our trust, it can leave us in a dangerous place, can leave us hurt, broken, anxious, and afraid. So ultimately, what we trust is valuable. What we trust, we allow a place of influence in our lives. What we trust will ultimately shape us for better or for worse. Let me illustrate it this way. In a second, we're going to have some pictures pop up on the screen, or right now. And I'm just going to, it's a really simple illustration. I just want your input on a situation in which thing I should trust. For instance, with this first one, if I'm climbing to my roof and I want to clean my gutters, should I trust A, a brand new metal ladder from Lowe's, or B, a ladder that has been there for a thousand years? A, okay, okay, okay. So up the next one. If I'm going for, want to take my wife for a romantic boat ride, should I trust A, a boat that I'm pretty sure has a hole in it, or B, a brand new speedboat? B, okay, okay. So for the next one, who should I trust to care for me? A, my family. This is me, my parents, and my brother, and our dog, Charlie Brown. Or should I trust the government or the organization I work for? A. It's pretty, pretty simple. Not saying that companies can't be trustworthy, but usually companies are worried about their bottom line, you know. Throw up the next one. I've got pain in my back. Should I trust A, this doctor? And this is the best picture I could find of a doctor. So I googled doctor, and I was looking for pictures that we can actually show on the live stream, and I was googling doctors, and I was like, none of you look like a doctor. Um, so, 
So A, this cartoon doctor who's representative of a real doctor, or B, WebMD. WebMD? Okay, all right, there's the youth leaders in the room. A. Or last one here. If I have a secret or something that I'm struggling with, should I A, trust my wife, or B, trust this random picture of a person I found on the internet? A, of course. And you know, the point of this is really, really, really simple. What we trust matters. Who we trust matters. If I choose to trust on something that isn't trustworthy, or like a ladder that isn't trustworthy, and it breaks, that can hurt me. If I choose to rely on a boat that isn't trustworthy, and it sinks, that's not helpful. If I choose to trust somebody that isn't, doesn't deserve my trust, well, that's just going to lead to further pain. What we trust matters and becomes part of the foundation of our lives. What we trust has the ability to help us or to hurt us. In Matthew 7, we find Jesus, he's in the midst of wrapping up this, this long sermon, and he's been preaching for a while and, and really examining the beliefs of the time and working through the wrong things that people believed at the time and, and, and revealing to them the truth of what God says in certain situations. And, and he's wrapping up the sermon and he uses this illustration of a person building a house to illustrate the difference between people who trust in his words, who, the people who believe his, hear his words and believe in them, who trust in him, and the people who hear his words and choose not to trust in him. And he puts it this way in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew against his house, and it fell, and how great was its fall. And you see, in this moment, in this context, what we find Jesus seeing, or telling people, is, is, we, see, is we see Jesus telling people that they have to decide between trusting him or trusting the religious establishment that had been ruling their lives for thousands of years. And, and, and he's telling them, do you trust me? Do you trust my words? Do you trust what I am saying about who God is? Or do you trust them? Do you trust their words? And, and so the religious establishment, it had been built on the, on the foundation of this covenant between God and people of Israel. But over time, they had taken different parts of it and twisted them to fit their own needs. They twisted them so that they could judge other people. They had twisted them so that they could hate their neighbor. They had twisted them so they could do all these different things. They could divorce their wife. They could commit adultery and do all these things that Jesus had to correct. And, and, and they twisted the, the covenant to fit their own needs. And, you know, this is why God talks about, like, uh, there's a day coming where I will establish a new covenant that one that is not like the covenant I made with, the, with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out, by the, uh, out of the nation of Egypt. For they have broken that covenant. By the time Jesus came, the covenant had been broken. 
And, and so this religious establishment was based on God, but they had twisted what God had said. They had broken the covenant to fit their own needs. And so Jesus is saying, will you believe in me? Will you trust me? Will you trust what I am saying about God, or will you trust them? Will you build your life on the foundation of what I am saying, or on the foundation of what they are saying? Will you keep trying to follow their list of rules? Or come into the life that I have for you? It's really a question of who do you trust? Who do you trust when life is easy? When you have no problems, no worries, do you trust in yourself and your skills and your abilities? Or do you trust in God? When life gets tough, do you trust in yourself, your savings account? Or do you trust in God? Who do you trust? Because what we trust has foundational impact on our lives. If we trust in the wrong thing, it can lead to ruin. See, this is the trust trap. It's the trap where because we know life will get different, difficult, we place our trust in ourselves, in our abilities, in our finances, in our savings account, in our giftings, in our job, in our family, in our own greatness and plans. And inadvertently, sometimes, sometimes it's intentional, but I think most of the time it's just inadvertent. It's an accident. In doing so, we stop trusting God. We choose to trust in who we think we are instead of who God says we are. We choose to trust in how we see a situation instead of what God is saying about a situation. We, we choose to trust in what we can see in a moment instead of what God is doing in the moment. And, and we build our lives on the foundation of ourselves instead of the foundation of God. But you see, being humble isn't just about putting others first. That's a key aspect of it. It's a crucial part of it. But being humble also means that we have an accurate view of ourselves, which requires that we know how God sees us. So you see, ultimately, the one who makes something is the one who gets to name something. So if God made us, then he knows what he put in us. So if we want to have an accurate view of ourselves, we need to know what he says about us. You know, there's a story in Matthew 18 where we find the disciples, they've been running around behind the scenes arguing amongst each themselves about who is the greatest among them. In essence, it's just a, no, I'm better. I'm better. I'm better. I'm sure parents have never heard that at their house. But we find the disciples arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And, and it gets to the point that in Matthew 18, verse 1, they, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And in essence, they're thinking it makes sense. It, logically, it makes sense if you, if you understand what they're thinking. In essence, they were like, well, we know that Jesus is the Messiah. Other people don't know that, but we know that. And, and that's true. This is the Messiah. And then they take it to the next step. They're like, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, 
We believe that he's going to come and he's going to conquer all the kingdoms of the world and he's going to establish this powerful earthly kingdom and he's going to be the king. Which isn't really true. Because they thought that Jesus was just going to come and overthrow Rome when Jesus was coming to overthrow the kingdom of Satan. There was a spiritual battle that was happening, not a physical one, and they misunderstood that. And so naturally, they're like, Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to establish an earthly kingdom. And we want a role that is good and powerful and famous, makes us feel good, gives us job security, gives us a pay raise, makes people look up to us. We want to be important in the kingdom. And more than that, I want to be more important than him. Really what it boils down to. And, and, and they were thinking about greatness in terms of accomplishments and power and status. And, and they were looking for Jesus to give them affirmation and be like, Peter, you know what? You are the greatest. John, you know what? You're a close second. James, uh, I guess you're closer to the bottom. But they were looking for like role. They wanted to know who was first. And Jesus wasn't interested in doing that. Instead, what it says is he called a child whom he put among them and said, um, said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a terrifying statement because he's saying this status battle you're having, that's preventing you from seeing what I'm going to do in your life. It's preventing you from entering the kingdom that I have for you. And he finishes it by saying, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I have to be honest with you. I've, I've often read this verse in the past and thought, okay, this means that in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven, I need to think less of myself. I need to think less, less of myself, and I think I need to think of myself less. I need to put others first. But it's interesting Because the word that they use for child is also the word that's used for toddler. So picture a two-year-old child. Who do they think about? Most of them, at least, yeah. (laughs) They're interested in their own needs and their own wants and their own desires. And, And so in the moment, Jesus is not saying, think less of yourself or think of yourself less. What he's saying is the word that's used here for humility, tapeno, is a Greek word that in this context, scholars agree, means to become fully dependent on the Lord. Humility is to become fully dependent on the Lord. It doesn't mean to think less of yourself. It doesn't mean to put yourself down or think that you're awful or, or, or a horrible person. It means to surrender yourself to God and to trust in Him first. So in this context, humility of a child really means childlike trust. It means vulnerability before your parent. And the recognition of your own inability to advance your plans without the help of your parent. You know, about two weeks ago, I had a friend of mine stop by the church office, and she just had a baby, and, and she brought with her, her her two-year-old child as well and the baby, and they, they came in, and they saw all the renovations and everything, and we were chatting, and at one point in the conversation, Kat, our kids' pastor, she she offered this little girl a sucker. And, and so the mom said, yeah, 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 you can have it. And so the girl went and she grabbed her sucker. And, and it was interesting because she, she took the sucker and then she tried to, you know, get it open. And she couldn't. It was just too difficult. She couldn't get the wrapper off. 
And it was interesting because the very next thing she did when she realized, I can't do this on my own, she looked up at her mom and held it up to her. Childlike trust. I can't do this on my own, so I'm going to turn to the one who I know can. Here, can you help me? It's a childlike trust and recognition of our own inability to do things on our own and choosing rather to trust in God, the one who we know can. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? When life is easy, who do you trust? When life is difficult, who do you trust? You know, the story of Elisha and the servant is is one that I absolutely love because I find it so fascinating how quickly the servant can go from seeing and hearing all these stories of what Elisha has done in the past to fearing for his life when a few soldiers come after him. And you know, at this point in the story of Elisha, we're not exactly sure which servant this is. We know that Elisha had, at one point, he had one servant who, who had, um, he, Elisha had fired about a chapter before this because he tried to take a bribe from somebody. And, and so his, his main servant was fired. We're not sure if this servant had been around for, during that time of that main servant, or maybe this was a newer servant. We're, we're not exactly sure. But in a nation where, pro, where prophets were revered, in a culture, in fact, where prophets were revered and held in high honor, it is likely that regardless of how long he had been with Elisha, he knew everything Elisha had done. Stories had probably spread, like how Elisha had given the king of Israel military advice that had stopped an invasion, or how he had gone to this widow's house who was poor and he multiplied her oil, or how he raised a, a woman's child from, de- from the dead, how he'd gone and he'd purified a poisonous stew, or you know, how he had healed a commander, a military commander of leprosy. He'd probably heard how somebody had dropped their axe head in a pool of water and Elisha made it float. And, and he'd probably heard all these stories uh, of what Elisha had done. And, and likely he had been with him long enough that when Elisha was like, oh, king of Israel, by the way, Aram's going to attack there and there and there. And then he'd probably seen like, oh, that's exactly what happened. He'd probably been with Elisha long enough to have experienced Elisha knew what he was doing and God was clearly blessing him. And, but then one, light, one night, he wakes up in the morning, he goes out for a stroll, he's in the city of Dothan, which was the city based on a hill. It was in this valley and it was based on a hill, so it's a city that's easy to surround, but archaeology shows us that it actually had city walls, and so it was this tight, narrow, winding market city. It overlooked these major trade routes through Israel, and it was a walled and protected city, and, and so he wakes up, and he goes out, and I'm not sure. I always wonder, like, did he go out of the city for a walk and then realize, oh, no, or did he, like, climb atop the city walls? Like, I, I don't know. I, it doesn't tell us. It just says that he, he got up, and he went out, and he sees this massive army and he's afraid. And, and, and he goes to his master and he says, Alas, master, what shall we do? We're trapped in the city and it won't protect us for long. And master, I don't know about you, but I'm not a soldier by trade. If I were, I wouldn't be working for you. 
So I, I, I can't fight my way out of this. I can't protect us for long. We've, we've got nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. They're waiting for us. They're looking for us. They want to capture us. Ah, I, I don't know what to do. And you see, at this time, the horses and chariots represented the strength of the Aramean army. The strength that they used to oppress the people of Israel. And, and so when, when the servant looks out, he doesn't just see there's a small band of soldiers there to capture them. He sees the might of the enemy army is there waiting for them. And he's terrified. Because, you know, it doesn't matter how much you trust in city walls to protect you. They can be breached. The story doesn't tell us that there were guards in the city, but I just assume there is. But it doesn't matter how many guards you have in a city. They can be killed. Doesn't matter if you trust in your savings account, it can be drained. Doesn't matter if you trust in your own abilities and skills, they can be lost. Doesn't matter how much you trust in your friends, they, they can turn on you. It, servant is afraid and he doesn't know what to do because he doesn't see a way out. But Elisha, Elisha's not afraid. Because he sees something that the servant can't see. And so Elisha replied, Do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. Now, I love that phrase because that tells me that Elisha knew something that the servant didn't. He saw something that the servant didn't. And he he said, he prays, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You want to know what's better than an army of horses and chariots? An army of horses and chariots of fire. It's a little bit more intimidating because I'm like, how would you even attack that? And and you know what's interesting in this moment is Elisha doesn't pray, Lord, send your army. He prays, open his eyes that he may see. Which tells me that the army was always there. The servant just couldn't see it. The servant just didn't see it. The servant was afraid because he had been trusting his eyes and his views and in his opinions of what was going on. He didn't see a way out. He didn't know what to do. And he was afraid, but he didn't have to be afraid because God was doing something behind the scenes that he couldn't even imagine. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? And you know, the story goes on and it talks about how Elisha deals with the soldiers as he goes out. He asks God, just blind their eyes. And the army's blind. And he's like, oh, Elisha? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here, let me lead you to him. And he leads this massive army to the capital of Israel, surrounds them with a bunch of soldiers, and is like, open their eyes. Look at that. Oh, hey, I'm Elisha, by the way. You're trying to capture me. Oh, by the way, you're captured now. And it goes on and they feed the soldiers and then they release them. They had every right to keep them as plunder, but they release them and there's peace. And ultimately, the servant was afraid of nothing because God was fighting on their behalf. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust in God or in your perspective of a situation? Do you trust in God or in your contingency plans? Do you trust in God or in the advice your friends gave you? 
Do you trust in God or in your employers to give you a good job and to not get rid of you when times get tough? Do you trust in God or do you trust in Martin to lead this church? Do you trust in God or in your own fears and and worries and what ifs? See, God is not a limited God. He's not a God who's up in heaven and he's like, ooh, your problem's a bit too big for me. I can't, I'm going to have to bring, run this up the chain and go to my, my commander. Like, no, 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 no. He's not a limited God. He doesn't have a limited perspective of what's going on in your life. He's the all-powerful God who knows everything that, about us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, and who knows our situations and our problems better than we do. He knows the problem that is going to come into your life before you even can worry about it. And he already has a solution. God is the one who knows what he put in us and what he called us to. He's the one who sees our problems and knows the solution before we even realize there's a problem. He's the one who loves us, who supports us, who is there for us, who protects us, and who provides for us no matter what. But he's also the God that won't force himself on you. Because robots can't love their creator. He won't force himself on you. See, he always gives us a choice to rely on ourselves and our own thinking or to rely on him, to trust him first. So you see, it's not about us. It's not about our perspective. It's not about what we think about ourselves or think about a situation. It's about God. What can he do in us, through us, and around us in the midst of a problem? So we're going to close in a moment, but I just want to close with a story of what God is doing in my life right now. See, recently, I've been feeling God calling me to take another step forward in faith. I'm going to be incredibly vague here for now, but I felt him calling me to go deeper in my faith for me, with him, to go deeper in my trust of him I felt him telling me that he has more for me, more than I could ever imagine, and and calling me to step out in in faith in areas that I've always doubted myself in. And with that calling has come an attack. Anxiety, fear, worry, stress, what-ifs, and it's a struggle because I want to trust God, but, you know, worry always comes and attacks. So I'm worried that maybe, oh, did he pick the wrong guy? And so, this was last week at this point, I was praying as I was in bed, going to sleep, I was praying, and, and God reminded me of this word, this prophetic message that he'd given me over four years ago. At a point in my life where I had no idea what the word meant, I'd been doing this course with, um, with Bethel Church uh, on faith, and I had this opportunity to do a prophetic session online with some random people that I had never met before in my life. And it was really interesting because they gave me a bunch of words, and I was like, I have no idea what any of these mean. I, I don't even know if some of these apply to me. But then they gave me one word. It was the sixth word they gave me that I was like, oh, well, that's, that's cool, but that doesn't apply to me now. And in the word, the person told me, this lady told me, I see this picture of many pairs of shoes. And right now, you're wearing shoes that are comfortable. They're sneakers. You like them. 
you're like, yes, I got my shoes on. These are comfy. These are great. And she's like, but I see that God is placing another pair of shoes in your path that are not as comfortable. And they'll take you out of your comfort zone. And your first impression will be, I don't think I'm the right guy. She's like, but God knows what he put in you. God's view is that you have more than you know inside of you. She said this, out of your comfort zone is where you're going to grow the most. An opportunity is going to come to you, and your first impression is going to be no way. But if you say yes, if you say yes, God will take you into new things that you wouldn't have picked for yourself, but God knows what he put inside of you. And you know, God brought this to me, and it, it honestly, it wrecked me. Because I'd been so worried so consumed with what if? What if I'm not good enough? What if I can't do this, God? What if you're wrong? And God brought this word to remind me it's not about you. It's not about you. You might feel inadequate, insecure, and afraid of not being good enough, but it's not about you. It's about me. It's about God, what he is going to do through me. See, this idea of it's not about you first and foremost isn't about how we treat others. That's important, but that's not the key. That's not the linchpin. That's not the most important aspect of it. First and foremost, what humility is about is putting God first. Before our plans and our backup plans, before what we feel is best, before our finances and our family and our dreams, before our beliefs about things like COVID and pandemics and wars and things like that, that we put him first, that we trust in him first, not in anything around us. Because, you know, when we trust in him, we don't have to worry about the armies that might surround us. We don't have to worry about our lack of weapons or our lack of an escape plan. We don't have to worry about the enemy attacking us and overtaking us. We don't have to worry about not being good enough or not being skilled enough. Because if we trust God and we walk in his will, he's going to take care of those things. He's got those things covered. We might not see how, but those chariots and armies and horses that are making you afraid are surrounded by something that's even more terrifying than you could imagine. See, it's not about you. Life is not about you. It's not about what you think, about how you see yourself, or about what you think you can accomplish. Life is about God. What he can do in us, through us, and around us. And if we trust in him first, there's more in store for each and every one of our lives than we could ever imagine. In a moment, we're just going to close in prayer, but I want to invite Martin to come up and pray over us. Because, you know, Martin has faithfully led this church for, I don't know how many years, 12 years, 13 years Martin has been here. And ever since I've known him, he's always been a man of incredible faith. Where when God calls him to do something, he goes into it, even if it doesn't make sense. And so I just want to invite him to to close and pray over us that we will be able to trust God the way we deserve, just like he does. Let's pray, church. I want you to think, as you close your eyes, I want you to think about areas in your life that you struggle to trust God in. 
that you want to fix yourself, that you want to take into your own hands. And we're going to let go of these things and we're going to place them in God's hands. And so, Father, I just pray for everyone who is gathered here today in this place, everyone who is watching online, either live or at some later date, we pray, Father God, that you would help us be people who place our trust in the living God, that we don't just go by what we can see with our eyes, with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of our heart, that we can see that you're at work behind the scene, that you're at work invisibly, that your angels and your chariots are with us, that your plans will come to pass, Father God. And so today we let go of all of our fears, all of our anxieties, all of our worries and cares. We cast our cares upon you because we know that you care for us and we leave them there with you lord we place them in your hands and we let go of them and we walk in the freedom of a child a toddler who trusts their parents who knows that their father is there to protect to provide to guide and to look after them and that's what we, that's the decision we make today, Lord. We cast aside all of our cares. We open up to the Holy Spirit of God and we receive your peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.